This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Written in Blood, the strange vampires of Britain and Ireland. So... We are on episode three of our spooky season specials, and uh, this week we're bu- going both traditional but also a little bit different. <laughs> yes. Um, what better creature to explore than the vampire, <laughs> which obviously has almost its own entire folklore se- segment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, some of the most world-famous vampire novels came out of the UK and Ireland. Obviously, we have The Vampire, spelt pretentiously, um, by... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, By um, John uh, Polidori, um, (laughs) who was posing as Lord Byron. Um, We've actually covered that whole thing in another episode about with regards to Mary Shelley. So you can check that out if you want to know more about that. (laughs) Um, But that was in 1819. Uh, We had Carmilla by um, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu, which was 1871. And most famous of all, uh, really, the the person who kind of hit, you know, really, really cemented sort of vampire mythology and literature was obviously Dracula by Bram Stoker in 1897. Now, just a reminder, because I think a lot of people forget this, Bram Stoker is an Irish author. I thought you were going to say Bram Stoker is dead. And I'm like, I know there are probably a few, <laughs> Bram are a few Americans who Bram are convinced Stoker that Oscar is, Wilde is still alive. Is dead. <laughs> Just if there's people out there going, what? But I'm getting Dracula updates every, you know, every few, you mean he's dead? Yeah, Bram Stoker's dead. Um, he was also a vampire. No, he wasn't. Uh, Bram Stoker was Irish. Um, I'm putting this out here because what we might find is as we're talking a little bit about vampires we might see a few kind of similarities as we go on so it's worth keeping that in mind yeah absolutely um despite the fact that these books were either written in england or written by english or irish or whoever authors um Britain and Ireland are perceived to have very few vampire stories, which are considered to be more of an Eastern European tradition. And yes, okay, we have fewer than Eastern Europe, definitely. Mm -hmm. We certainly have fewer recent ones than Eastern Europe, but we do have some. Yes. And Um, it's not quite accurate to say that we don't have vampires, or we don't have vampire stories anyway. There is a whole kind of reason, particularly, again, when we sort of look at sort of the influence that Bram Stoker had, in terms of kind of cementing that vampire mythology. We can't really go very much into it today, so we're not going to. But again, we have really deep dived into all of that in previous episodes. So do check that out if you are interested. Um, so let's kind of start with looking at sort of general in UK myth. Obviously, we have Celtic, Pictish, British and Irish traditions. Um, contain actually quite a few uh, blood-drinking sinister creatures um, which we would definitely fit, you know, uh, we would label them as vampires. Yeah, definitely. Um, And this is part of the reason that it's perceived that we don't have any real vampire myths. It's the fact that separating creatures into categories is is fairly recent, Mm -hmm. the last 400 years or so. 
Uh, before that, ghosts, demons, fairies and vampires were all part of the other and were often interchangeable. So in one story, you'll have something that is described as being like a dark fairy of some kind. But mm -hmm. it actually goes around drinking blood from people while they're sleeping. So we'd go, hmm, isn't that a vampire? Yeah. Um, and, and vice versa. There are ghosts that do something similar. There are ghosts which grant wish wishes, but, you know, if you upset them, then they... They drink your blood kind of thing so you know there's a lot of crossover there is it, it kind of and again i'm sorry that I'm, I'm the one who's bringing it up um though you said fairy first so i feel I less guilty um <laughs> is of course that if you look at kind of the etymology of a lot of these words um and kind of their origin and things like that it's not actually about sort of identifying any particular kind of traits it's not like with an animal uh, where we say, okay, well, they've got all of these things, we're going to call them that. Um, it's much more to do with the descriptor. So Faye obviously meant, you know, something strange, something, you know, um, otherworldly, of the other world, something which which possesses magic, in other words. Um, so it could be applied to a whole bunch of other things, which is why if you actually, particularly if you look at Irish mythology um, and Scottish mythology, you'll see things and they'll be described as fairy. Um, and you'll be like, that's a vampire right there. Um, how can you use the word fairy for that when you also use the word fairy for like tiny little cobbler creatures or little brownies or things like that? Um, and it's because it's not actually like a label for an animal. Um, it is kind of just means of the other world. So it is always worth considering the etymology and also how all of these things kind of and words sort of interchanged um, and were used differently by different people. And then, of course, some kind of structure. It was really kind of the Victorians who attempted to kind of start putting a structure together <laughs> without a lot of the context that they needed. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So up until around 1732, when the word vampire travelled over from Europe, these creatures were not called vampires because that wasn't the language we had. Mm. And the stories we'll get to in a moment use the word vampire even if they predate this language shift. And it's just to make things easy for those who are listening to this podcast. Yeah. But in the actual original stories, the word vampire isn't often used. Yeah. Um, it's a convenience thing. So... Basically, this is also obviously added to the perception that we have no vampire myths, and we are going to prove you wrong. There yes. are even some very peculiar ones, <laughs> which we will share. <clears throat> okay, so we have <laughs> a few to look at, um, and we're going to start with the revenants, um, which can be found in the mythology and folklore of England, Wales, and Scotland. Yeah, I mean, if we limit it to just sort of the UK and Ireland, you, you yeah. kind of find revenants in all of them. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a revenant is very much a person who has died. Now, mm. it can be a person who's died unshriven, so they haven't given a confession and therefore they did not die in a state of grace. Mm -hmm. It can be, uh, in some instances, it can be a baby that died before it was baptised. Mm -hmm. It can be a person who died, who lived an ex especially wicked life. Um, the, the perception was that if you lived a wicked life full of vice then you wouldn't rest comfortably in the grave mm -hmm. and the idea was that these basically they were ghosts but they were also kind of solid as well they could pass through walls they could pass through small gaps as vapor and what have you mm -hmm. um, but they could also sort of solidify their their 
atoms or molecules, even though when these stores were made, nobody knew what an atom was. Yeah. Um, so that they could be perceptible to touch. So unlike a, a ghost or, or whatever, which might just sort of be like, you know, it wouldn't be solid at all. It would just walk in and walk out mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, a revenant would come in and be solid enough to do you some actual physical harm. And usually that harm involved somehow siphoning life off you. Yes. Um, now, revenants, obviously, it kind of depends because when we, we think of the word revenant, once more, it could be applied to several kind of things. Um, we have sort of certain revenants, uh, which is why sometimes their behaviours will vary. Um, the word revenant can be applied to some of the creatures which sort of the Vikings and the Norse brought over to us. Yes. Um, who could, who had all sorts of strange qualities, like being able to sort of like double in size and, and things like that as well. Yeah. <laughs> like just some very strange little bits and bobs, which is why if you kind of look up revenants, you might suddenly go, oh, hold on a second, there's some inconsistencies there. Um, but yes, as Jules said, one of the kind of the main sort of features of revenants were that they were dead um, and that they could have ghost-like qualities but could also were also then very physical and in their physicality were very very dangerous yeah yeah definitely um so they might well just i've I've read stories i think it's an english folklore one might be from norfolk Mm -hmm. a revenant that came in um she was a very young bride and she died early on in her marriage Mm -hmm. and then she just kept coming back and she would come and kiss her husband and he would sicken day by day he also didn't want her to go i think it's an old story that kind of got turned into kind of a romantic poem because he was kind of wasting away um yeah (laughs) and i've I've read uh russian versions of that very not the same story but very similar so we've obviously got a lot of crossover or there's a lot of um archetypal memory going on here with that mm-hmm. yeah so but sometimes they did actually go literally for blood and sometimes they would wander around the village and they'd be drinking babies and what have you so yeah it, it really so does it, it does depend now again we again we have this kind of quality where uh, this mix-up quality where they were kind of they were used kind of the, the word revenant was used for ghosts as well and things like that and who had kind of more psychic damage and then sometimes revenants were just like basically zombies, just full on zombies, as in a yeah. revenant comes from, I believe, that, you know, it, it comes, it has Latin origin, French, um, French origin of um, revenir, uh, which means uh, to return, literally yeah. <laughs> to return. Um, and it's just this idea that, yeah, um, I believe revenants could also be created by what what we would call necromancers by people by witches yes. or things like that who could actually evil wizards <laughs> yeah evil wizards who would call back the dead um to to attack the living um or to do other nefarious things um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah nefarious shit it's like well i'm bored i don't like working in the fields i'm gonna call up the dead yeah uh, for those who kind of play um, sort of games, I, th- I think in Skyrim they're, they're called Draugr. Draug. Yeah, yeah. Draug. Um, the Draug is uh, is a type of revenant, and some people do believe that the, the Draug 
was kind of potentially the origin um but i think that kind of falls into question and it's more of a it's more of a, a a matter of several mythologies and folklores kind of mixing together but certainly the idea of the dead returning physically not just as spirits um has been found in folklore across the british isles yeah yeah definitely okay the welsh kind of the welsh equivalent although some of the welsh um myths are quite odd but the welsh equivalent is the brennan fluid um so this is again it's basically a revenant but it is a very particular spirit someone again who has died without a state of grace and keeps coming back and feeding off the living yeah. um, sometimes they do quite comical things in welsh myth so for example they'll you'll bury them and then three days later they'll start knocking on your door mm-hmm. in one one myth i believe they went around singing because it's wales and apparently everything sings at your door in wales. <laughs> let me in i'm a fairy <laughs> and that is an interesting point that i think you might have unwittingly made there is the fact that a revenant can sometimes not actually be the return of the person who died but could be the return of something else instead yes (laughs) someone gets swapped so you might also say changeling but it's not exactly a changeling it's something that kind of someone died without a state of grace and um, the fairies took the body and gave you something else. Enjoy! (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Which, again, I do think, you know, we have a lot of traditions now which kind of pull on that that folklore without us necessarily kind of thinking about it. Um, And I think it's kind of one of the fun things is, of course, we're at Halloween and, and right now at Halloween... Um, you know, you will have people knocking on your door, asking for things. <laughs> the dead returning each year. Um, so this is the season of the revenants. Um, <laughs> and this is the season of the Brennan. Um, is it Floyd? Brennan yeah. Floyd? Yeah. You basically um, you pronounce it like you've got a throat full of phlegm and you're pretty much on the right track. <laughs> um, we then go to Scotland and we have the Bavon She. Um, I love the Bavon She and I say that not as in like <laughs> she and I hang out on the weekends. Um, I love the folklore of the Bavon She um, yeah. and, and how she kind of appears. Um, <laughs> particularly because you've got like stories of hunters and, and they'll just happen to find a very a nice sort of it'll be a, a, a sort of a down you know like a downpour and they'll find a, a nice cosy little hut or or a, um, a sort of a cave and they'll be like oh this is convenient and then sit there and then um, a beautiful woman will appear and none of them will be suspicious <laughs> It's like, no, no, this is this is obviously legit. God is on my side kind of thing. Yeah. I think my favourite and probably the best known story at the Bavanchi talks about a group of young men who, you, they don't say, but you kind of get the impression that they're actually thinking about going off on a cattle raid, which is a time-honoured tradition in the Scottish Highlands. Yeah. If you're bored, you go off and you steal some of your neighbour's cattle. It's like the um, old, it's the old <laughs> precursor of cow tipping, which is basically. not a thing, by the way. But anyway, go on. <laughs> basically, yeah, that's what it is. Um, anyway, they they went down and they heard music and saw someone dancing around a fire, and it turned into turned out to be a group of beautiful young women who smiled and pulled them into the dance. 
and they were midway through and they're all sort of whirling and dancing clapping etc and then one of the young men noticed that the woman did not have feet she had the delicate hooves of a of a, of a doe and um at that point there the women the women's smiles just suddenly sort of spread too wide and they showed that they had these huge teeth and they attacked the men and started drinking the blood and i think i think uh, two or three of them managed to get away, but the rest of them were just kind of like they just got eaten. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. Um, but yeah, the, the uh, one of the other versions I like is that again you had it was a group of men probably out again off on a cattle raid, and uh, they were all there kind of commiserating because it was cold and it was wet and it was dark and they found a little cave, um, and each of them were thinking about sort of wanting to be with a woman they said you know like i'd rather be with a woman right now um and i think there was four of them and three of them you know three beautiful ladies kind of appeared um and sort of took three of them away and the last one was spared because he was thinking about his wife (laughs) 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 he was just like you know so like they said like come on come with us and he's like no no i'm I'm content to think about my wife and therefore was spared because he was, because he wasn't tempted by the women because he just really loved his wife. It's like, now, who originated that story, I wonder? I wonder. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, when you describe them, they just sound a bit sort of twee and silly, but the whole point was they were actually quite frightening. They were as fast as deer. If you've ever seen a deer run, then that's pretty bloody fast. Yeah, um, um, and the, the deer are actually kind of scary, really. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay, moving over to Ireland, and we have the Nihuarv, uh, which is literally just the undead. They yes. weren't pulling any punches, they meant the undead. There are lots of Irish stories which we would now call ghouls, zombies, or vampires, um, but there are two in particular that are worth mentioning under this tag. Mm-hmm. The first one is the Arvatak. Um, Arvatak uh, was actually an Irish king in mythology. Uh, mm-hmm. The name Arvatak actually means halfling or half man. And the story went that he was wounded in battle um, and could not, you know, obviously could not stand up to his full height. Right. So it's kind of an insulting title, really, but apparently he was a real git as well. Um <laughs> It, sometimes the name Avatar is used to mean dwarf, but that doesn't seem to be accurate mm-hmm. as far as you can. Anyway, in the lands east of Foyle in Glenallan, um, a brutal and jealous man who believed his wife was having an affair um, climbed out to the castle window one night uh, to try and catch her in the act. So he was going for in flagrante del tante with her lover kind of thing. Right. Um, instead, he fell to his death which is what you get for climbing out of the castle window instead of using the door. Yeah. <laughs> Not just talking to your wife. Um, <laughs> anyway, they buried him, and they buried him standing up as befitted a chieftain and his status. Mm-hmm. And three days later, he came back and frightened everyone on his holdings and his household by demanding bowls full of their blood. They were so frightened by this pale and terrible visage um, and hit the predatory way he was moving that they all complied they all supplied bowls of blood and he glutted himself on these bowls of blood okay um so they tried killing him and then burying him again and three days later he came back again and demanded more blood <laughs> <laughs> at this point the people were starting to get really seriously freaked out the 
um, underclan, the, the serfs and things were kind of like, we're leaving. We don't care that we're technically owned by you. We're going to go because you have basically a vampire in charge now. We're not okay with that. <laughs> um, this is too much <laughs> even for us. <laughs> it's like, fine, you can own us, you can make us work for you and not pay us, whatever. But no, we are not being owned by a fucking vampire, okay? <laughs> <Enough>. <laughs> You've got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> Eventually, somebody sought the advice of Cahan, who was a chieftain at a local clan. And Cahan went away and he meditated on it. Apparently, he was also one of the druids. Mm-hmm. And when he came back, he prescribed this remedy. He said they were to pierce Avatar's heart with yew wood, um, then bury him upside down, cover him with ash and thorn and a huge stone slab which, you know, would do for most people. Yeah. And this is what they did. And, the, you know, they were obviously waiting breathlessly. Three days later, he didn't come back. However, the stone, which is now called Licht Avatak, is, um, is still present in that part of Ireland. And people give it a wide berth because even now, hundreds and hundreds of years later, they're kind of like, no, if you touch the stone, it's an ill luck stone. Um, or if you touch the stone, it'll take the life and health from you and you'll sicken and die kind of thing. Oof. So there we go. Definitely, I think that's definitely a vampire story. That definitely sounds like a vampire story. I just, I just love the gall of the guy just turning up. <laughs> it's like he doesn't even sneak around stealing people's blood. He just shows up and is like, <laughs> right. It's like, no, I'm hungry for blood now, kind of thing. Um, okay, which brings us on to my favourite, but also one of the saddest, I think, um, vampire stories, and that is the story of the Dergtu. Mm-hmm. Um, in Irish, Dergtu just means. Uh, the red one, which you know is actually quite sinister when you think about it. Yeah, just a tiny bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically the the Dergtu, a beautiful farm girl, um, fell in love with a farm labourer, and they planned to get married and to raise a family together. But her father would hear nothing of it, and the eye of the local chieftain, who had already buried two wives under mysterious circumstances, fell upon her. And he insisted upon marrying her, and her father was quite happy to exchange her for the large amount of money the chieftain was really was willing to pay for her. Mm-hmm. So she was unhappily married off to this man. Um, under uh, Breton law, you could be married off to somebody, or you could be pushed into agreeing to marry somebody as a woman, even though technically you had to give your consent, but... It was quite difficult as a teenage girl to say, no, I'm not going to marry someone because the idea was that your father had your best interests at heart. Yeah, and also if you you could say, no, I'm not going to marry someone, but you were still kind of property of your father then, so he could make your life incredibly miserable if you refused. Yeah, so depending on what kind of man your father was and what kind of man your husband was, um, sometimes marriage was the only way out because after a year and a day, you could actually divorce your husband by throwing all his stuff out of the house and banishing him. Which is a fun, fun thing we got from the Vikings. Thanks, yeah. guys. <laughs> well, actually, I think that was already in Ireland. Was it already in Ireland? Yeah, okay. that was already part of Irish law. Um, okay, cool. Uh, again, you have to, it's who, who you can get to enforce it for you. You'd have to have got all the men at arms, the household <laughs> on your yeah. side, wouldn't you? Um, anyway, she was very unhappily married to this man. He was so possessive of her that he locked her in a tower and wouldn't let her go out anywhere. And very fairy tale. Very fairy tale, indeed. And he would just visit her himself. And she was just given this narrow 
slit lancet window to look through and eventually she stopped eating and stopped drinking and withered away to nothing. Um, by this point the man she married had decided she wasn't very beautiful anymore and he'd taken up with another woman and uh, called her his wife even though she wasn't even dead yet. Wow. When she finally died he had her just given basically a, a commoner's burial. Um, three days later, <laughs> there's a pattern here, three days later she came back. Good for her. Actually, something happened before that. It, when she died, she was given the commoner's burial and nobody mourned her passing, not even her family, not even her father. The only person who remembered was the farm labourer who had hoped to marry her and who still loved her, and he wept over her grave. Some versions of the story say that his love kind of resurrected her, but considering what she goes on to do next, I don't think so. I think it was just revenge. Yeah. So three days later, she came back from the dead. She went back to her father's house and she crept into the room and she laid her hand on him and drew the life out of him while he stared up at her with terrified eyes. The following night she went to her husband's house and she leaned down and kissed him and drew all the breath from his lungs. And then after that she went on quite the killing spree. She went and she drank the blood of every young man in the village, apart from the man she'd hoped to marry. He got he got spared. <laughs> and she basically killed the entire village. And then she started on the women and children after that, presumably because she was just hungry. Because once the bloodlust was awakened, she just couldn't put it away again. Yeah. Um Eventually, they found they dug her up again and they reburied her with a stone on top. And it is very much like Licht Avatar, where it's kind of like this is this is where this poor wronged woman lies. Um, and it's treated with a bit more respect, but also kind of like, no, stay away from the stone. You don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really, really interesting. Both of those stories are supposed to have inspired Bram Stoker. And I think you can see a little bit of it in in Dracula, particularly if you've read Magda Krana, which is the Icelandic version. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, we can't really go too much into Dracula, um, but you do absolutely see kind of how things have certainly been informed. Um, and, you know, we're not even going into the concept of sort of like psychic vampires as well. Yeah. You know, we're, we're kind of sticking to the sort of more of the blood drinkers, as it were. But, you know, if we if we delved into psychic vampires, we then, you know, have things like the Lennon she, um, etc., you know, who also kind of drained life. And we've talked about vampires in the past and actually what vampires in a lot of mythology um, across the world actually looked like and they didn't just feed on blood it was on life force and that could come in various and increasingly icky ways um so you do really start to kind of see that actually there is a very strong tradition of what we would label as vampires now across the british isles and ireland um so strong and so big that we can't cover it all in one episode so we'll stick to the blood drinkers for now yeah, so that was literally just four, four well, basically four types of um, folklore vampires from the UK and Ireland. Um, we're yeah. going to look at some actual recorded cases of vampirism. Yes. <laughs> in the UK, um, which are which are interesting. I'm, do you mind if I start with the first one because it's so nuts that I've just got, I've just got to explain it. No, no, like I totally go for this one because again. People will hear this and then think, did I just mishear that? And no, you didn't. So uh, d take it away, Jules. 
Okay, um, I want to talk about the vampire chairs of Glamorganshire. <laughs> <laughs> you heard that right, people. The vampire chairs. <laughs> um, the more you dig into this, the more you find out that actually there is a strong lineage of vampiric furniture in Welsh tradition. And <laughs> I no, believe it or not, there's a vampire bed, there's a vampire chest, I think there might be even a vampire cup. Um, it, it, it's really weird. And then you listen to the stories and it's kind of like, Okay, well, I guess it's no weirder than a vampire story overall, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, in Carmarthen in Glamorganshire, uh, there's an 18th century fa- farmhouse. Um, mm-hmm. At this, this point in time, a room was rented out to a minister who was preaching in the local area. Um, one yeah. evening he wrote... Well, in fact, I think it might have been the first or second evening. He rose from a chair from the room downstairs where the fire was and found that... His, st- his sleeve was stained with blood, and when he drew the sleeve back, he saw that something had bitten into his wrist. And, uh, you know, the, the person who kept the farmhouse sort of, like, shuffled their feet a bit and then said, oh, there's a, there's a chance that chair's haunted. <laughs> <laughs> you, you should tell people that first. <laughs> it's like, just leave that chair alone, you'll be fine. Anyway, the minister went up to his room, and over the next few weeks he weakened and sickened a lot and then one night he woke up in tremendous pain to find that he had been bitten as in large bites all the way down the left hand side of his body um, and he'd been bleeding quite severely um, mm. he went outside to find um, to find his horse because I think he thought yeah you know what maybe I won't stay here anymore yep. um, and went and to to great, he went to get his grey mare from the stables and then found that something had been biting and feeding on his grey mare as well. My he God. went back in to confront the owner of the farmhouse and the owner said, yeah, sorry, um, the, that room used to belong to somebody who really hated ministers and we've had all sorts of problems with it. <laughs> Basically, you're fine and you don't get your blood drinking unless you're a member of the clergy. <laughs> <laughs> what? Again, tell people this before. <laughs> Terrible host. Zero stars on on the on Airbnb review. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, okay, a century or so before this, there was a place in Cardiff, which had a vampire bed. I just want to mention this one because this one is a little bit sinister. Because if you think about mm. how vulnerable you are when you sleep, um, anyway, it was a room that nobody really liked to use very much. But the husband said, "Well, you know, it's a perfectly good room." Um, the wife had a baby and they laid the oh. baby in the bed and oh, the baby God. died and then a, f- a little while later the, w- the wife had another baby and um, this time they did not use the bed but they caught something creeping out of that room towards the child uh, so after that the the husband had that room locked up and nobody ever used it and nobody went in there but it was basically, I mean, he tried it himself. He lay in the bed and then he woke up to find he'd been bitten and bleeding in the night. And we're not talking flea bites. We're talking about, you know, the proper double double half circle of like a human mouth. Oof. So. That is absolutely horrifying. Though, again, we it's kind of interesting because if we look at it sort of in the reality of it, if you got bitten by like a tick, for example... Um, you know, with Lyme's disease, you get that round sort of circle 
yeah. around it, the, the red circle, which could sort of look like kind of an indent of something biting you, you know. And it makes um, you pretty darn sick as well. And it does make you very, very sick. And if you don't have proper medication, Lyme's disease will kill you and it, it will be very nasty. Um, you know, you could actually conceivably then, again, with the horse, that idea, you know, etc. the horse having tick bites, um, you know, or getting a tick and not being very well and a human sort of getting a tick from a horse. I mean, ticks tend to stick to deer and, and, and dogs and stuff like that, but obviously they will, they'll have, they'll take their opportunity. So perhaps it kind of comes from that. Though I do have to say, what is it with the Welsh and like cursed furniture? Because of course in Arthurian mythology, you also have, (laughs) you have the, the chairs all around kind of the table and there's just the one chair, which is like, nobody sit there, that chair's cursed. And at no point. <laughs> yeah, cursed, cursed or haunted. I mean, furniture is very much treated like it's got a an agenda of its own. I mean, there's the cauldron, for example. Yeah, of Fran absolutely. I think maybe but, that's where a lot of this comes from. But <laughs> I, I do think so. But I, I just, I love that in all these stories, it's like, oh yeah, that's just the cursed chair. Have you considered removing the cursed chair? So we can't do that. We'll, we'll upset it at the moment. It's well, contained within the chair. Yeah. <laughs> But it is, it's it's very interesting. And obviously, actually, if you check out our seasonal specials from last year, you can actually find out a little bit more about other cursed <laughs> chairs in our Cursed Objects um, episodes, of which we've actually done a couple of them. So you can find out more about some odd and freaky things if you'd like to follow that. Um, let's jump on to the next one, uh, which is the uh, Kroglin Blood Drinker. Now, if I'm correct... Uh, this story came to life because it was included in the um, autobiography of Augustus Hare, um, who was a Victorian gentleman um, who lived kind of in the sort of mid 1800s um, up until the sort of the early 1900s. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, Allegedly, the story dates back to sort of 100 years before that. Um, Yeah. Um, he went around, he was very interested in ghost stories, so he went around and included lots in his writing. Um, and this is one of the uh, the stories that he collected, um, which he claimed to be true from kind of the area that he was in. Yeah. So will you tell us a little bit more about the Crowley and Vampire Jewels? Yeah, it's it's got a few, okay, it's got a few fishy bits if you like not, yeah. um, not literal not, li- not literal fish vampire fish <laughs> now there's a thing <laughs> that is a thing it's a literal a thing, thing. Yeah, <laughs> thing. not usually in these waters um, anyway now I'm thinking about lampreys which I wish I hadn't because have you ever seen a lamprey up close oh god they're horrifying oh, yeah anyway moving on the Crocklin blood drinker um, at Crocklin Grange an unnamed sister and two brothers moved into the house. Uh, the sister woke her brothers one night screaming because a horrible withered brown corpse thing had appeared at her window and she had been in a state of such utter terror and kind of felt her will was overcome and she had opened the window for the thing and it had come in and attacked her and drank her blood. Um, now the brothers, being good brothers, did what they did. They took her off somewhere to get to get good air, which sounds like a very Victorian thing to do, not a 1600s <laughs> thing to do. Um, and she recovered and insisted that they go back and deal with the creature. 
So they went back and she was in the room again. And this time when the brown corpse thing appeared at the window, she screamed for her brothers and it frightened the creature. The creature ran across the lawn and one of the brothers managed to shoot it and wound it in the leg. In the morning, they traced the blood trail to uh, a grave. They disinterred the grave and found the creature lying there. Um, and I believe they then burned the corpse and they didn't have any more problems with it after that. Uh, I think that, that those are the broad strokes of the story. I mean, you can have it with more flares and curlicues and embellishes if you want, but essentially that's the, that's the story. Yeah. Uh, it bears a striking similar similarity to a penny dreadful called Varney the Vampire. <laughs> yes. Oh, Varney the Vampire. Which, um, <laughs> it, which sounds silly now, but actually that was something that Mr. Hare was uh, quite interested in. He did collect penny dreadfuls as well. So mm. whether he caught part of an old um, vampire story from folklore and then embellished it for his audience it's possible yeah um the problem is crocklin grange doesn't actually exist the closest you can get is old crocklin manor which is like a hunting lodge but the geography is wrong for the geography of the story so mm. it might have been something that came from the area and yeah i'm not going to doubt that there's vampire stories from the area mm-hmm but the actual facts, as we've got facts at all, just don't fit what Mr. Augustus Hare said. Yes. Um, and again, Victorians, I mean, they love they love a little bit of drama. They pretend they don't, but they do. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it is a bit suspect. But it is actually a really interesting story. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things for me about it is that... Um, you have this creature which is sort of coming to her window, but it is injured by kind of mortal weapons. You know, it, it does actually get shot. It does actually kind of leave a trail in that respect. Yeah. Um, so there's almost something kind of human about it, uh, which <laughs> Just... is really intriguing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... I... I don't know. I mean, I think it's. I think there are bits in sort of things like Dracula where guns are used against vampiric creatures, and they do have some effect. They don't kill them, but they do actually injure them. Whereas, you know, Hollywood etc. has kind of had this thing where vampires cannot be properly injured except by wood, and it's not. You know, they've made yeah. it like the like the poison for vampires, haven't they? They have, and it's very interesting again how much kind of vampire lore and our understanding and our remembrance of it is so incredibly recent rather than an actual reflection on folklore so we kind of get this idea of you know vampires not bleeding um or vampires not actually kind of getting hurt or vampires not being able to walk around in the sunshine and the whole this whole sunshine thing is that Originally, if we look at Bram Stoker as kind of being the sort of the father of of modern kind of um, modern vampirism uh, folklore, uh, in his book, Dracula can walk around in sunlight, no problem at all. Um, He just loses his power. Yeah. Um, And we, of course, have uh, our good friend Nosferatu, uh, to thank for the addition of kind of sunlight and things like that. But it means that actually 
what I think happens then is that when people hear kind of some of the British and the Irish equivalents or the Scottish equivalents of um, kind of vampire stories, they go, ah, but it doesn't fit with our conception of vampires. And the conception of vampires that people have are based on very, very modern additions to much older ideas. Yeah, definitely. Okay, talking about much older ideas, let's look at the Buckinghamshire Revenant, which dates back to the 12th <laughs> century. Um, this was chronicled by William of Newburgh, who was a monk and a chronicler, and was, you know, had the shit scared out of him by this one by all the accounts. <laughs> um, it's quite a simple, straightforward story. It was a local man who was buried. And then a few days later, he rose from the grave and was seen all around the abbey and the grounds and the town. Um, he frightened people uh, wherever he went. Disease was spread. And uh, there were records of him attacking people as well. William of Newburgh wrote all this down. It's in the original, right. the original French, if you want to read it. <laughs> middle, middle French. Um, just, just in case anyone wants to, a casual Sunday read, some, some middle French. <laughs> be fun. Um, anyway, the Bishop of Lincoln was consulted and he ordered the body to be disinterred and then burnt. You know, this is quite extreme stuff because at this point in time, people believed that on the Day of Judgment, act, your actual physical body would be resurrected. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't have an actual physical body, then you were kind of screwed. <laughs> Yes. So ordering a body to be disinterred and burnt is kind of like, okay, we really think some bad shit's gone down. Yeah. Um, it was, a, I mean, just to give you an idea, is that during the time um, and during certain periods, you would even kind of be advised if you were cutting your hair to bury your hair um, and not so that basically you could claim it because your body needed to be whole um, for... Uh, to, in order to be resurrected, you know, on Judgment Day. You know, that was the extremeness of it. Just to give you context, that it's a very serious thing for them to go, right, we are literally kind of going to completely destroy this body. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's why burning of heretics and witches was so extreme. It was, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're going to really leave this up to God as to whether or not you reach the afterlife. Yeah. Um, so that's a fun thought. <laughs> um, very similarly in some ways there is the Berwick vampire which dates back to 1732 so it was actually the first recorded incidence we've got of something being called a vampire rather than a revenant or mm. a ghoul or a ghost or whatever um, basically this again is a quite straightforward narrative a local wealthy man died sinfully so presumably he didn't confess before he died he was buried in unconsecrated ground. That's nearly always a bad sign in a story. Mm -hmm. um, he then started roaming town after his death with a pack of spectral hounds spreading disease wherever he went and uh, attacking the local populace, especially young women. And once, once again, the local clergy took matters in hand, had him disinterred from the unconsecrated ground and burned. And apparently that solved the problem. It really interests me how so many of these stories kind of bring the concept of spreading disease, that that's how it's kind of haunt, that's how they sort of haunt people um, through the spreading of disease, uh, especially when you consider 
how they understood disease at the time, how they understood kind of balance of humours and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, how, how it all worked in terms of bleeding and stuff like that. Um, it It kind of... It makes me wish I could just talk to people back then and see, like, talk talk me through all of this. I really want to know what the thought process is because it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And there is, and the thing is, you can see a logic to it as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's not just; it doesn't feel random. I mean, looking us looking at it now, we go, "Well, that just that just is weird. That's bizarre." But you can see the logic to it to a certain degree, particularly if you start to question what's kind of the undercurrent, what's actually happening um, at this time, because you could actually have a real disease. Um, And again, when you think about cleanliness and and the difficulty in the diseases that can be spread through kind of dead bodies, corpses, etc., you know, there's just so much there, which it feels like we're just like one one page away from the truth from understanding it all but we can only ever speculate yeah. and i i do love to speculate <laughs> that's what we do here on dissecting dragons <laughs> it certainly is <laughs> okay um let's head towards well pretty close to where my parents live in fact mm-hmm. um the blandford vampire 1700 wasn't actually called a vampire at the time as we've mentioned mm-hmm. um but this is this is a pretty good one although the start of the story makes no sense in a lot of ways. Um, in the 17th century, William Doggett stole a large sum of money from his master. He was off, supposed to be buying um, land or whatever, speculating on behalf of his master. Instead, he took the money and he spent it. Um, in fear of discovery, he decided to kill himself. That's wow. <laughs> yes. Okay. So obviously, if you commit suicide under church doctrine, you die without a state of grace because you you can't confess all your sins and then go and kill yourself because you are committing murder upon yourself. Ergo, which is a cardinal sin. Ergo, you you're kind of on the path to hell according to Catholic doctrine. Okay, I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just telling you what the logic is. Yeah. Um. Anyway, for a century after this, Doggett was seen blood soaked. Um, and sort of slipping around town. He regularly cornered young women in the street or crawled through their windows to feed on their blood. When his body was disinterred a century after its burial, it showed no decay. That is... Okay, that's a good one. Um, I I, I love (laughs) your use of the word crawl. There is something kind of frighteningly visceral about just using the word crawl he crawled through their windows see horrifying i mean there are some more of the lurid the more lurid accounts have his his fingers which have long nails sort of creeping between the gaps in the shutters and peeling them open so that he can crawl inside oh that is a horrifying descriptor really creepy story apparently he wasn't a great guy even before he stole money and then offed himself so um, that seems to be at the root of a lot of these vampire stories. This was this mm. was a bad person kind of thing. Yeah. It's either a bad person or a very wronged person. Yeah. So okay. I, I actually don't, don't know what they did, whether they burned the body. I think they might have done. Delightfully, delightfully horrifying. Oh, I should have said that we... Because we, we did talk about the fact that, yeah, in a lot of um kind of uh, vampires across the... um 
the UK and Ireland, the, the solution for dealing the, with them is burning their corpses. Um, but you do also have versions which, um, I mean, Jules has actually written about where you it involves taking out their, you know, removing their head, so beheading them um, and driving a stake through their heart. Um, you know, these are not new concepts, the driving of a stake through the heart, but often it was the burning or the removal of the head um, and the the burying upside down or, or all sorts of stuff. I love the burying upside down because it's just this concept of, oh, we'll confuse got, him. He'll turn all the wrong way. He's going <laughs> to be fine. Um, yeah, some of the weird stuff with like, that have become associated with dealing with vampires, like staking, um, mm-hmm. stake them while they were, were basically dead during daylight hours or whatever. Um, the idea was to nail something to the grave it was very symbolic but it wasn't just used on vampires it was also used on people who were suspected of practicing witchcraft during their life it was used on the Romani a lot yeah Um, the Romani generally take their own dead and dispose of them using their own rituals and things but if a Romani sort of died outcast or um, for some reason was buried in or just they wouldn't have been buried in consecrated ground that's how German people kind of felt about it a lot of the time they quite mm. often stake them just to be sure yeah and the weird thing is under Romany tradition most other Romany would not know they wouldn't be happy about um a gadshi kind of dealing with the body but they also wouldn't be kind of necessarily upset by this this premature state you know pr- prophylactic staking thing because they're like yeah if you don't deal with our dead in the right the right manner with the correct rituals we absolutely will come back as vampires and kill you yeah <laughs> you know it's part of romany romany tradition so uh, there you go interesting little side side trip there <laughs> um okay so let's uh jump over into uh neighboring i say neighboring uh <laughs> close by surrey um, and this one is actually a little bit more recent, I say recent. Uh, the Surrey Vampire um, comes from 1938. Um, and we are kind of getting more and more recent, so... Uh... <laughs> we are indeed. Um, this is a very short one. and It's one of those ones where there are accounts and they more or less say the same thing. And it's one person's experience. There's, mm-hmm. It's not a pattern of behaviour, which all the other stories are. Um, a woman claimed that a mysterious creature swooped out of the sky and attacked her and drank her blood. Um, this is during 1938, which is obviously where, you know, there's a lot going on if you think about what was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're heading towards World War II. Uh, we don't actually have streetlights out in the country. So if you're out in the country, which a lot of Surrey still is, yes. um, it's very dark, very, very dark. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, that's quite a frightening thought. Something coming in, swooping down on you, and drinking your blood, and then obviously she lived to tell the tale. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about yeah. this. Now, obviously, actually, uh, in the last episode, we did talk about kind of the phenomena of seeing strange creatures or cryptids during times of of great stress. Um, so, and I, I would, I think it'd be fair to say that that was a period of stress for uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it is really, really interesting. I just love the the kind of the swooping motion. Um, and of course, we've kind of also got to remember that by this time, you know, Dracula has cemented itself 
um, within kind of the public consciousness. Yes. Um, and I, I don't think it's, you know, coincidental that we start to see the appearances of kind of supernatural sightings that fit more within that understanding of vampires than uh, previously. Yeah, definitely. Um, there, there was more of a consensus as to what one actually was by that point. Uh, you can certainly tell the difference between Hollywood influences and folklore influences, I think. Yeah, and I think what we see as well is that a lot of people then interpreting things and using that word, you know, for vampire. Yeah. Um, and also interpreting events. Uh, so, you know, being kind of attacked, having something swoop down on you. Um, you know, what's the record, you know, with... Do we know for sure that she actually... Could she just have been bitten or was was blood actually drunk? You know, did they actually measure it? Did they actually know? Um, but because of all of the other factors, suddenly it just feels very likely and, and it can easily be called as a vampire attack, even if there's no evidence that blood was actually drunk. You know what I mean? It, all of these yeah. kinds of things that appear in the public consciousness um, start to influence the way that all events are kind of... Um, interpreted definitely and i kind of feel sorry for the local bobby who had to take the, the take the statement on this one <laughs> you can see how it happens oh. it's out in the middle of nowhere and most people don't have telephones so someone has to run to the post office and ask them to phone the local police station the local yeah. police station has maybe one person on duty at night because it's the country and we're on the verge of world war Two, and nothing's really happening yeah and then you get this hysterical woman complaining about a vampire attack. And the poor yeah. bloke must have been kind of like, well, I've got to write it down, but I don't want to show this to my superiors in the yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be the person who everyone then comes to, <laughs> comes to know as the guy who, who, who got the vampire attack. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're then going to sort of jump ahead by about sort of 30 years to the Highgate vampire um, who appears in 1970. Yeah, this is a weird one. There's no real, or rather there's very tenuous sightings of the actual vampire itself. Um, mm. Basically, I, I, can't, I think it was sort of July, August of 1970, the police were called to Highgate Cemetery in London. Um, mm. There are lots of famous people are buried there. Um, famous from the sort of 1800s, that is. Um, yeah. And it was noticed that some that something had definitely gone on the night before, as in there were arrangements of flowers on many, many graves, which were arranged in sinister circles with arrows pointing away to something else, so in a very ritualistic fashion. And mm -hmm. uh, when they followed the direction of these, these arrows and things, they found a grave that was unmarked, that had been opened up, and the coffin inside was empty. So it just had stained silk in the bottom. And... Um, no one, they, they they kind of put it down to vandalism, but it was so eerie, a lot of people were kind of like, no, something else happened here. They never caught who did it either. Um, 1970, there was a fair bit of unrest and things going on as mm -hmm. well, uh, politically, sort of within the country itself. Yeah. But there were a number of sightings right up until I think it was 1975, where people talked about seeing a sinister shadowy figure slipping in and out of the, the graveyard. 
Yeah. It, it's kind of interesting because when it comes to sort of graveyards and the dead and things like that, um, we obviously have a lot of folklore with regards to kind of bodies and and rising the rising dead and stuff like that and revenants, which go back a very, very long time. Um, even you could say, you know, there's elements of you go back to the ancient Shi um, and the concept of, of the fairies being under the hill and being these kind of these dead bodies and stuff like that. Um, there is so much of it. And at the same time, we have to add in, of course, the kind of the frenzy and the, the kind of, I'm going to call it an epidemic of grave hunting um, and then corpse, you know, uh, corpse stealing that happened during the Victorian period. Um, and obviously this is not the Victorian period where <laughs> we're on by a hundred years, but these kinds of events, the horror of, of the dead, of dead bodies kind of being pulled up from the ground or finding empty graves or things like that, I think really entered the the consciousness of people in in Britain and in Ireland and fed into the folklore in a lot of ways. So we get events like this where this could very easily be some sick people who are trying to kind of create a stir you know yeah um and the horror is in the whole concept of either this body rising up onto its own or someone performing a ritual which would cause the body to rise or the body being stolen for nefarious purposes um either way it's all kind of tangled in um, together and terrifying because of it. Well, one perspective was because there'd been these reported sightings of a dark shadowy figure slipping out of the cemetery that actually had been a bunch of people who knew there was a vampire and had gone in to deal with it, knowing that they wouldn't have permission to disinter someone because it's actually quite difficult to get permission for that. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly <is>. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could just dig up someone if you feel like it. It's also interesting, of course, because people had particularly going back in time people didn't really have an understanding of why how things rotted and of course we have lots of cases of very well sealed tombs or of kind of bodies or things like that which because they had consumed something um, or been subjected to something remained very very intact like uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's body I believe um was actually incredibly not, you know, was very, very um, intact for a very, very long period of time. Uh, and, you know, you also have cases of, I think it was George III would go around and go and sort of unlock the tombs of, like, dead kings and stuff like that, which was so well you know, air vacuum, you know, there was like vacuums within uh, the sort of tombs that the bodies were very, very, very well preserved. Uh, but of course, the moment they were kind of subjected to the air or the outside elements, um, you know, parts of them exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Um, which was a thing that King George III really did as a prince. He just went around sort of opening, opening the coffins of old kings so that he could go and have a look at them. <laughs> But you can understand why if you kind of had a, a, a kind of a concept of, of things rotting and how they should rot, 
you know that if you did pull up a, a, a sort of a body or things like that um bearing in, t- in mind also this is we've got a period where people were literally being buried alive and they had bell ringers and all that jazz um so there's all of that mixed in as well if you pull up a body and you know that it's been dead for a very very long time and the body ha- is preserved because of one factor or another um people wouldn't understand why one body would be preserved compared to someone else who would decompose you know very very quickly so what is this it must be some kind of sign of sorcery or witchcraft or evil or even goodness because a number of saints were also very well preserved yeah it's it that that is the weird thing which is like if saints were seen walking around you know that was all good but uh yeah, even without their reason, heads. Even without their heads. It's very selective. Anyway. Um... <laughs> okay, moving on to our final one. The Birmingham Vampire of 2005. Oh, yes. We're going that recent. I think there are even more recent ones than that, but I'm stopping in 2005. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically several eyewitnesses reported a vampire on the loose in Glen Park Road um, at, at Wine End. Um Basically, this was uh, described as a large male-type figure which grabbed a woman and bit her neck um, and then viciously attacked the neighbour who tried to pull this creature off her um, and on, on, uh, viciously attacked several other people who also tried to intercede. Um, it was described as being monstrously strong. And there were several uh, further alleged attacks. I mean, I think it fled when the police were called, so it had some mm-hmm. sense of self-preservation. Um Several, there were several other alleged attacks around mm-hmm. that area. There's no conclusion to this, guys. I'm afraid this is not going to be a satisfying ending. <laughs> no one no. found any grave, nobody burned any bodies. It was just this has happened and it's on the record. That is very creepy. Yes. Um, I mean, not least because it could, well, I mean, it sounds very much like a, a disturbed individual, um, but uh... having some sort of psychotic break. Having yeah. some some sort of psychotic break, but just the fact that no one was ever caught and hopefully given the attention that they required, the medical and psychological, you know, attention yeah. they required is is kind of frightening. Yeah. Um, and it's worth mentioning at this point that there is a very specific... I mean, we're not talking about people who choose to live, if we like, as vampires as part of like an offshoot of the goth scene, because you know what, if you're doing everything consensually, that's up to you. Yeah, um, and they also a lot of them also take kind of very elaborate precautions when it comes to safety with blood and stuff like that. I I personally yeah. still find it a bit odd, but you know what, you do you as long as everybody's happy. Um, but there is, thanks to basically Hollywood and stuff, I think, which is kind of not to blame, but as you know, brought put out this fantasy that is both sexy and repellent at the same time. Um, yeah. Sometimes when individuals are manifesting certain types of, of mental illness, they will fall into the vampire trap, either yeah. where they, they see them everywhere or where they mm-hmm. believe themselves to be one. I mean, it's pretty well documented well up until the sort of 1600s, certainly in France and also in Britain, I believe, that there are people who believed they were vampires because they craved blood and it turned out as far as we can tell that they had something like um porphyria or extreme anemia or even Mm -hmm. haemophilia which would have made blood quite appealing yeah um 
particularly during periods where you know you would have meals which would be quite bloody depending you know it, it doesn't it, it kind of stands to reason why you might sort of start jump to that and again when we think about intrusive thoughts or things like that you know stuff that people would never actually want to do but if you don't understand intrusive thoughts and you're living in this very kind of superstitious time um then all at once you're like oh god these you know i i'm this is there's a devil within me that is trying to convince me that i want to do that and then once as we all know with intrusive thoughts once you kind of start to entertain them for too long they they come back again and again and again and again so it's kind of very easy to see how someone might because of a difficulty that they are currently going through fall into that trap particularly during that period yeah so i mean there is there's probably some truth to some of these stories some of them are kind of analogous for you know disposing of the dead improperly and perhaps polluting a water source and causing hallucinations or what have you cholera etc um there are diseases and conditions so it can look like vampirism as we've said um when you get onto sort of the 1930s or even late victorian period onwards we're in kind of occult practice territory Um, and whether these occult practices are benign or more sinister and some of them were because they like to push the envelope um Mm -hmm. those practices can affect an unprepared mind because they hinge on altering your consciousness so whether you believe what you're doing is real or not and whether you believe in vampires or not it doesn't matter because you are shoving your consciousness towards a certain end it's not nothing when you do that there will be consequences yeah and the fact of the matter is is that everybody can be prone to this obviously usually to different degrees um but I think a reason why we tend to think, oh, well, we're very sensible in the modern day and therefore, you know, we wouldn't fall into this. But actually, in the modern day, we are just as trained to be able to kind of push the, I'll say the suspension of disbelief, push that to the side enough to fully engage with something. Um, And we do that all the time when we watch movies to a lesser degree, for example, when we read books. Um, And when you kind of are getting yourself into that certain mood and things like that as jules said it's very easy to kind of slip into that it's a pretty normal and natural phenomenon um which can have some very dire consequences yeah um then you know travel forward a bit sort of 1970s 1980s we're in satanic panic era Mm -hmm. um obviously we've talked about this before when we talked about cults and things and the Satanism that's practiced as a religion in America is is the cuddly Care Bear version of the very nasty stuff that was actually happening, but wasn't happening quite as quite as often as people would have had you believe, shall we say? Yeah. But there were you know there were people doing nasty stuff, um, and mm-hmm. I don't want to go into it because we just don't have the time. It it is really horrific, no. but it is. that all yeah. got linked with vampirism as well. Yeah. I do have a question for you, Jules, um, from the perspective of somebody who, you know, has kind of studied biology or, and, and sort of worked within that. Um, do you think that part of kind of the vampire mythos and things like that has also stemmed from uh, conditions like rabies? Um, it's possible, I suppose. Um and there are lots of weird things in nature as well. Mm-hmm. There are many, many creatures that you wouldn't expect who actually are hematophages. They eat blood. 
Um, that, yeah. That's what sustains them. There are vampire birds, there are vampire bats, there are vampire frogs. True story. Yep. <laughs> um, there are lots of different things. I think when you get into a large predator, and a human would be a large predator, there would have to be some serious um, genetic drift and stuff going on in order for that to be a viable evolutionary sort of track. Um, but yeah. things like rabies and stuff, maybe. I think the thing with rabies is it was pretty well known and well documented and has been for well over a thousand years. So whether that yeah. would actually be considered, you'd have to it's really not know much about it. Yeah, and, and that is fair enough. But I, I kind of wonder whether... Um, a part of me wonders whether there's sort of something in in sort of the ancient memory about you know people acting strangely, behaving strangely, attacking others, spreading diseases. You know whether that might be a kind of a little bit of a precursor, which which fed into it potentially, along with everything else. Because I certainly don't think that that would be it alone. But you could certainly imagine that kind of an old folk story within a certain area might have been attributed to you know someone who did end up having rabies or something along those lines um certainly also because when we get vampires and stuff like that uh their associations are often connected with again p potentially because of bram stoker but again we have to remember what some some of bram stoker's influences are um, with things like werewolves and, and things like that, um, rather than them being these kind of these dreaded enemies, which is what a lot of sort of Hollywood has done now, we kind of see them being the same thing in a lot of older folklore. Or, or very similar. It really depends on the perspective of the time, doesn't it? And it does. The yeah. one thing with the, the, the only thing with the rabies that kind of might echo a little bit in folklore is the un inability to cross running water. Of course, yeah. rabies is also called hydrophobia because it produces a fear of water. So um, yeah. maybe yeah. <laughs> it's, it's possible. Or maybe it's a... there genuinely is something out there that feeds on living blood. I yeah, maybe there is. <laughs> I, think, I think the way some of them act like um, hanging around possessing chairs and things is maybe a little bit implausible. <laughs> um, or, you know, popping around town or singing at doors and stuff. I mean it's a good story <laughs> it, it is a good story and again i'm i would just be so fascinated to kind of find out the origin of it because i do think that a lot of the time these are not you know there is a basis for this um but i think the basis is often misunderstood and the basis could have been a joke that's the other thing is that sometimes people are just telling jokes or are just trying to tell stories um but yeah, I, I just, I wish, I wish we could really know. Um, but alas, the past remains always yeah. clouded in mystery. Well, I mean, it's the basis of all folklore stories is there is a warning, a practical warning in there somewhere. And with yeah. vampires, it seems to be, you need to respect the dead, i.e. you need to deal with dead bodies properly because otherwise there's going to be all sorts of problems. Um, they yeah. might not actually be vampiric problems. They might just be a case of, yeah, you could wipe out your village with cholera. We don't know what cholera is, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's what we could theoretically be doing. Yeah, it seems to be that since we buried this person, there's been uh, all sorts of weird illnesses about. Um, we don't know why, but uh, we do know that if we burn the body and, you know, kind of 
sort of evacuate, you know, kind of ostracize the people who do seem to be affected, suddenly things get better um, because we don't actually understand how germs and stuff work. So, you know, <laughs> burning is very effective when you want to get rid of um, certain things. <laughs> yes. Don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I guess that is our kind of, and it was very much a whistle-stop tour of, of some of the vampires of, of England and Ireland. Um, there are many, many more um, I'm sure, and if you kind of research them, I think you'd find some, you'll find vampire stories even today. Um, and whether that is very much the more kind of revenant style or an actual recorded attack and with witnesses of someone, you know, like in Birmingham, um, really attacking somebody, uh, they seem to be all around. Um, and I think all the more because suddenly people really know the word vampire. Yeah, that is one thing, isn't it? It's the categorization of the stories. Yeah. And it, it, when we think about the fact that in rural areas, we've maintained this kind of this folklore for a very, very long time. Um, I think one of the things that Dracula really, really brought to the fore and has, and which has largely affected the way that we kind of see vampires and vampiric creatures is that previous to this, it was very much a rural thing. And Dracula, even in his conception, starts in a rural area and then comes to London. Um, and the idea of bringing folklore, which was by its definition something within rural areas, within the countryside, within folks, uh, you know, folk traditions, rather than within urban areas, uh, we suddenly get this kind of this mix of these two worlds, um, which, and that's why I think also the vampire has really, really stood out, is that the vampire has become an urban figure. Um, not something cast away just to kind of the the sort of the rural, um, you know, street, sorry, not streets, but the, you know, the, the rural shadows, but something which lives and exists within the cities, which is very, very popular, you know? Yeah, that is one of the threads of Dracula, though, isn't it? That you forget mm -hmm. folklore at your peril. Yeah, that, yes, absolutely. It's, it's well to be scientifically minded and... and adhere to reason but don't forget where you came from kind of thing <laughs> absolutely yeah okay that's probably all we've got time for this week yes um and we are going to finish off with our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you've got one for us yes i recently read actually i sort of listened to the audiobook on the way down to winchester for madeline's birthday um <laughs> jeanette mccurdy's i'm glad my mom died um, lots of people have been up in arms about the title, but you know what? Not all mothers are good mothers, as her book proves. So she's absolutely entitled to that title, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, it is a, an autobiography, but it is also horrific. So it kind of fits in with our spooky theme. I think if you are in a place where you have issues with um, eating disorders or um, familial abuse or anything like that, maybe put it on the back burner. Yeah. Because she is absolutely unflinching and the humour is very, very dark when she's talking about it. Um, and it is absolutely horrific. However, what I really applaud about this is 
she manages to talk about her mother um, in a way that is not constantly sort of blaming her or shit talking her or anything despite everything she does Mm. she seeks to understand and view things through a more sympathetic lens without ever exonerating her for everything she did and I think it shows her growth as a person that she can do that and that she can be honest about all of this stuff it also shines a light on sort of the the child Hollywood type culture and how perhaps we need to change some of that stuff yeah absolutely really good I've I've heard a lot about it so that that is definitely um going on my to be read list because it just does sound incredibly intriguing and on that note guys we're gonna say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you next week for our final episode in our spooky season special yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast 